0: said, but I say to you. That's the subtitle, really. Jesus was a rabbi, you see, and he talked like the rabbis did. And around it, the rabbis would gather about 200 people who would follow them about from place to place. Wherever the rabbi went, the teacher went, they would follow so that they could learn what he had to say. And he would have followers and believers and disciples. There were three distinct groups. And um, And the disciples were the ones that were closest to him, the ones that he sifted out that he knew would actually retain the word that he was giving them and would put it into practice and much more importantly, would pass it on to the next generation. So this teaching here that we've been going through since January is passing on everything God has given to me to the next generation. And whosoever will pick it up it's not down to me to decide who is going to pick it up. Someone will pick it up and run with it, and someone will pass it on to the next generation. Because we've been sadly lacking in the church in proper foundational discipleship and passing it on. So, and When the rabbis taught, they sat down to do it. They didn't stand up like we do in the West. They got on the level with the people they were teaching. Jesus sat down on the Sermon on the Mount, and they all sat down round it and listened as he broke the bread of the word and gave it to them. So, okay, that said, welcome, as I said, anybody who's not been before. Be blessed, have your mind stretched, or not, as the case may be. Argue with me, wonderful. Don't mind at all. I'm not uh, laying down the law according to Beryl Moore. I'm laying down the scriptures according to the word of God but you're perfectly at liberty to take me to task on any of that no (laughs) gone to preaching again so let's have a prayer Father thank you Father so glad that it's your word and not mine Father pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to be upon all of us opening, Father, the eyes of our understanding, causing us to see things in your word that we've never seen before. Pray too, Father, chains will fall off today, bondages that have been imposed on us because we don't understand. Lord, we don't blame anyone. It's lack of understanding. Father, too, I pray we'll push back the kingdom of darkness here today because the enemy hates the truth coming. Good so Father thank you please anoint the ears of the hearers let's have a good time in your presence today Father in Jesus name and Holy Spirit where would we go without you so thank you for being here I'm not going to ask you to come you are here and I say thank you for your presence thank you and I just submit totally to your Lordship thank you thank you thank you we bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Right. Basket. If anybody wants to give anything, the basket's there. And i won't to say. And if there's anything in it, and you're hard up, take it out. That's the way we do it. So, where I feel God is taking us now, um, we've sort of moved from one one season to another. Is into actually having a look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is brilliant. Um, It's not going to be in any order because the first thing that the Lord sort of picked out for me to do, have I said everything, yes, Um, is money matters. So here we go. So in the next few months, we'll be looking at what are known as the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7. Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He was saying, you've heard all the teachers of the law telling you something, but I say to you. Every time he introduced something different, and he prefaced it with the same words. You have heard, but I say, which means he was going to tell them something different. The scribes and the Pharisees whom Jesus addressed had been brought up on the law and the commandments, and they'd been unable to keep them. Instead, they put increasing burdens on the people until the weight became intolerable. Jesus comes to them and says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, What man lays on you, you will be unable to carry. But when you understand what I am saying and come into agreement with my sayings, yoking yourself with me, my purposes, your burden will ease. Your heart will be light. So he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And here he addresses the problems of man's heart at a basic, individual level, the level of their own conscience, of their own hearts. His teaching was radical and unpopular because it struck at all the outward pretense of religion and godliness to the very core of their being, which was rotten, and they knew it. White was sepulchers, he called them, didn't they? Predictably, they were furious and they sought to kill him. That's fallen man's usual reaction when he's found out. So the next series of teachings may strike you quite deeply as we explore the questions of conscience and morality. And today we are starting with something really close to our hearts, and that's the question of money. As I said, what Jesus is saying was in the past, you've heard these things as an external commandment, but now I say to you, these things are issues of your heart. And when Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, what he's saying is that we can fool ourselves. We used to say you can fool some of the people some of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but you can't, and some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And you can't fool God ever. We can fool ourselves. And it's not condemnation, it's liberation, because to the extent that we're deceived about anything in the word of God, we're in bondage, we're not walking in freedom. And Jesus came that we might know the truth, and the truth might set us free. So this first in the series is going to talk about the issue of money and how free we actually are in this issue. So money isn't God, so why is the church worshipping it? There was a book a few years ago, I've got it on my shelf, uh, had that title. I mean, it's all in the title, you don't need to say any more. I don't need to read the book, it's there. Every so often in the church you get talks, and sometimes quite a degree of pressure placed on you, about money and giving. But the subject of money and giving and stewardship covers a much wider area. And I want to explore money matters and stewardship in some depth, really, covering not just giving but the whole subject of stewardship generally and what exactly God is requiring of us during our time here on earth and why it's important that we understand what we should be doing with what he's given to us. Someone has said that about 15% of Jesus' teaching was about money and this is more than the time He spent talking about heaven and hell combined so there must be something very important about it. Because how you handle money is a real window into your spiritual life. Money is a very powerful thing in our lives. And did you know you've only got one commodity as a Christian, and it isn't money, it's time. That is the only commodity you have. So if your mind is revolving around the fact that you've got money and you need it and this and that and the next thing, you're focused on the wrong thing. It is what you do with the hours God's given you that is important. And that's not to bring you into bondage, that's to set you free. So we spend a lot of time thinking how we can get enough money, keep it, store it, have it, invest it. And it could be truly said in the West that money dominates society. And it's not the root of all evil, love of it is. How you spend it, where you spend it, how you distribute it, are indicators to where the wellspring of your life lies. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's Matthew 6, verse 21. So where is your heart? I'm not asking you to answer me. Answer yourself. Where is your heart today with regard to money? God owns everything. When he said the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, that was a Hebrew idiom for saying the lot's mine, I own it. It's all mine. And he distributes as he will. He's the one great territorial spirit. Now we may talk sometime about spiritual warfare because I think there's an awful lot of DOS talked about that. About territorial spirits and one thing and another. If we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we're far above all that. Because we are seated with the one great territorial spirit. So that's another issue altogether. But I think an awful lot of time has got wasted in the Christian world, fighting something that we've no need to fight. Do You know, husbands loving your wives is spiritual warfare. Wives loving your husbands is spiritual warfare. Because the enemy is after you doing the reverse. So it's just a thought for you. Going to go way off this morning. Uh, We didn't have a good night, which was brilliant. I mean, it wasn't brilliant for some of us, um, crawling around the floor at three o'clock in the morning. Um, But we were awoken, all of us, by one thing and another. And I'm beginning to learn, beginning to learn, that when something like that happens, it means that God's going to do something, and the enemy is not happy. And my part in it is not to plead to be got out of it, but to worship. I woke up, I don't know, somewhere between two and three, um, with such a ringing in my right ear, it was like someone had got St Andrew's bell going off. And I thought, I've had this before. So I just laid there with this huge ringing going on, and I said, Bah I just worship. Lord, I worship. And I'm going back to sleep. I worship you. Next thing I knew, I dropped off, woke up again, thought, ooh, it's gone. I did. People As soon as I thought that thought, did me straight in the ear. So I did the same again. Went back to sleep. Woke up this morning about quarter past seven. Or maybe a bit earlier. Brilliant. So I'm learning uh, that you don't get your eyes on the enemy when he's attacking you. You get your eyes on God. That's a simple little lesson in spiritual warfare. There. Worship is the key. It's the highest form of spiritual warfare hates it, the enemy hates it, because you're not taking any notice, and the whole thing is that he wants to get your attention, do not care what the attention is. You know the story of that uh, pastor, um, one Sunday morning, he went to the church and got in the pulpit, did the same thing as he did every Sunday morning, and he starts rebuking this and rebuking that and rebuking the other, to clean the church. And the service was appalling, the worship was awful, everything fell apart, the people were arguing, you know. And he said, God, I don't understand. I've done the warfare, look, I couldn't do more." The Lord said, Do the same again next week and I'll show you something. So the next week comes, he's standing in this pulpit and I'll be this and that and the next thing. And his eyes are opened and he sees these hordes coming in through the windows. And he said, What's all that? And the Lord said, They don't mind what sort of attention they get as long as they get some attention. So the principle is, you take away from him the very thing he wants, which is attention. Just take it away. Sometimes you have to persist longer than others, but that's the that's the process, you know. Another level, bigger devil. You've got to beat the devil on the level that you're on. He'll break into song in a minute. <laughs> Mick's written a song about that, haven't you? Uh, I'm guilty. <laughs> with the BJ's. Yeah, with the BJ's backing group inches. so money in the Old Testament wasn't coins it was silver and gold and I don't want you to turn to it but you can see it in Genesis twenty-three sixteen. that Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron um, which he'd named in the hearing of he- the sons of Heth and, and it was done by weight and there's an awful lot, uh, the word shekel comes from the Hebrew word shackle s-h-a-k-e-l to weigh and God says an awful lot about justice in terms of money and weighing and what you do uh, with what you sell. Proverbs 16:11, "A just weight and balance of the Lord's; all the weights in the bag are His concern." The Lord always gives warnings about unjust weights. Deuteronomy 25:13 and 14, "Don't have two different weights or measures, because they put a large stone in the bag or the bottom of the basket." when it was on their side, and the people who were selling, and when it was on the purchaser's side, it was a small one. And God sees these things. Cheating is detestable to the Lord, and there's a reason. So that you may live long in the land. It has to do with longevity. There's something at stake here. God sees dishonesty. Jesus said, if you can't be trusted with earthly things, who will entrust to you true riches? It's rather akin to the um, honouring your father and mother, that there is a promise attached. We'll have a look at that this afternoon when we look at bitter root judgments. The reason you honour your father and mother, no matter what their um, personality was like and how they treated you, is because there is a promise attached for you, that it may go well with you. Amos 8, 5 to 7, and here the prophet is telling the merchants what they're thinking. He's warning them of of one of the things that God's not pleased with is that they're cheating. They make the ephah, that's the measure, small and the shekel large. In other words, they're given a small amount and charging a lot for it. And they were selling bad wheat. So the poor were getting ripped off, robbed, and eventually they would have to actually sell themselves into slavery to keep alive. God never forgets. In the same way as Paul says in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust to forget your work and labour of love which you have shown towards his name. He will not forget swindling. He doesn't overlook anything we do. If you are a Christian in business, you must not rip people off. If you are charging for eight hours work, work eight hours. Be scrupulous in your dealings. Don't dodge taxes. Joyce and I went into Sainsbury's was it yesterday when the man gave us he was on his way out wasn't he and he held the ticket the the parking ticket and I thought I don't want that Joyce said just take it I'll dispose of it because bless him he was trying to swindle the council out of the the hour that was left on the car parking ticket that may seem like a small thing but I would have done that in my pre-Christian days but God very quickly spoke to me about that you don't do that So I took the ticket, thanked him for it, gave it to George, and she screwed it up, and we went and paid our dues. But it's little things like that. It's an integrity issue. God sees it. He wants to use us all, you know. And he wants to work through us powerfully, but first you've got to pass your tests. You've got to be... When you think no one's looking is the time when he's seeing it. So it doesn't overlook anything we do. Tax avoidance is alright. Tax evasion is not. Tax avoidance would be when you put your money into the church and they can claim back the tax already paid if you're working. The same as if you put your money into a pension fund, that's legal. But tax evasion is when you fill your accounts and don't disclose part of your income when you know that you should. We will not prosper, beloved, if we do these things. The means definitely do not justify the ends, even though the world will tell you that they do. If you are on benefits, make sure you declare all of your income. Do not try to hide, because you may hide it from the authorities for a season, but you won't hide it from God. And sooner or later, the law of sowing and reaping will catch up with you, and God will call you to account. He's not angry with you. He's disciplining you as a much-loved child. Everything is in-house with God. Always, he is dealing with you in-house. So our dealings have to be totally open and honest. Don't promise anything to anyone without keeping the promise, even at a cost to yourself. Quickly, over to Joshua 9. Some of you may know this scripture as yeah. a lesson in it for us, really. Mine once headed up failure with the Gibeonites. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan in the hills and in the lowland, I'm reading from verse one in the New King James, and in all the coasts of the Great Sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, all the ites, heard of it that they gathered together to fight Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and mouldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? So they said, From a far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God, because we heard of his fame and all he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings, they tell him porkies, they've come from just up the road. Actually, so he finds out. He makes a peace treaty with them, and then after three days, and he'd made this covenant, he heard that they were neighbours who lived nearby. So he's got foot and mouth disease. He's put his foot in it, made a covenant with these people, which he cannot and will not break, And so he ended up using them, I think, as woodcutters. Lesson for us is it's not always as it looks. So just pray about things. Joshua, on this occasion, did not seek the Lord. Whenever David didn't seek the Lord and took counsel from his elders, trouble started when he moved the ark. And it seemed good to him and the commanders to put it on a new cart. As died as a result of that. No, that's nice. <laughs> No, it's look, that's lovely. You can pull the door if you like, yeah. Wonderful. What is it, they're going to go door So, uh, they were meant to be destroyed, these people but they tricked Joshua and he kept his word even at a cost to Israel so even when it hurts do it because one of the marks of maturity is integrity in all our dealings looking at Israel God promised to bring them into a good land he actually set it up so that they were on a trade route and that meant but with the land which yielded so much and so rich and the mineral content of it God had set them up so that they could be wealthy Abraham was wealthy he had camels and donkeys and sheep and cattle, maidservants and servants, and the ancient world saw wealth as these sort of things, not just silver and gold, though he obviously had those as well. There were many wealthy people in the Old Testament, so being wealthy is not a problem. It's how you get it, how you keep it, and what you do with it. Job owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. The Bible lists out the wealth of the day, and it was in livestock prominently. Barcilla, he's, he's another one. He provided for King David during his stay in Manahem, for he was a very wealthy man. These were righteous men. Boaz, he was another wealthy, righteous man. And you remember the woman at Shunem that Elisha went to see, and he stayed there for a meal, and he needed a bit of support, and God provided this well-to-do woman. He provided means for Elisha to live when he was staying there. God remembers such actions, and when Elisha wanted to give her something, Gehazi says, her husband is old and she has no son. So you know the rest of the story. She has a child after a year, and eight years later, he's taken ill in the field, and Elisha raises him from the dead. God's not unjust to forget your arms. There is a reward. I don't mean arms, A-R-M-S. A-L-M-S. And he doesn't forget your stinginess either, or your generosity. So you see, he's always looking. Sometimes payback comes in ways that we don't expect. In the New Testament, wealthy women supported Jesus. Joanna, wife of the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others, they weren't poor, they had money, and they were supporting the work of God. The poor in the church were supported because of wealthy people. In Acts 2, we read, there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned houses and land sold them and brought the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. So these wealthy people funded the work of the ministry. The Bible does not support the thought that that it's spiritual to be poor. I've heard stories of uh, last century, um, sort of the pastor being proud that his kids had no shoes because everything was going into the work of God. That is not the way the Lord sees it. It's not that way. It's not that... God can make money if he needs to. Graham Cook tells the story of uh, going into meetings where people have got no money in their pockets and coming out with money, pockets full of money. We've had money it multiplied here. Um, it happened to one of the girlies when we were in the Wallace room a few weeks ago. Uh, the ba- basket was there and uh, one minute there was nothing in it and I looked and it seemed to be overflowing with um, what looked like newly printed Notes, and I thought, well, that's nice." And then this girl came by and she squealed. Um, she said, I, "I've put some money in the in the collection for the lady who's going to ball." She said, "And I just opened my purse, and I didn't think I've got anything in there. And God's multiplied. There's money in there again. So I'll give it to you," she said. Put it in the basket. She was really. It really just threw her. But. It doesn't I understand that. That God, we, have, we serve a God who supernaturally multiplies. We tend to divide it and say, you know, well, I've got this, and so I'll divide it with you. But He multiplies the thing. Am I doing something that's not giving? Uh, the reason that they sold things in the New Testament, and some of them, as you know, Ananas and Sapphira got themselves in a bit of a sticky position, um, was because that's how they raised the cash. They didn't have an at-west on every corner, and if you had silver, you buried it in the ground. You didn't put it in a safe. So it's not a bad thing to have money in your pocket, but the question is, what's really important? And again, the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. Matthew 6, 19 to 21 says do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also goes on to say the lamp of the body is the eye if therefore your eye is good your whole body will be full of light But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is a Hebrew idiom for meanness, because good eye is a generous person. This is where it's so useful to go into the Hebrew roots of the Bible and find out what exactly was being said, because we put a Western view on an awful lot of stuff and come up with the wrong answer. And so we lose what Jesus was actually saying because we don't understand the culture. And we do need to remember, as I'm always saying, the Bible is Jewish from start to finish. It was not written by Gentiles, it was written by Jews. So we need to see their culture so totally different from ours. I mean, you know, I'm fond of saying them. If you say to um, a Greek, which is what we are, we're Greek thinkers, um, my peace I leave with you. We'll go off and do a Bible study. That fat on peace and leave and with and you. We'll, we'll do a Bible study. We like the words. You say to a, a Jew, My peace I leave with you, you say, Okay, then give it to me. You see, it's a totally different cultures. We need the both. Okay, then give it to me. We need the understanding of the word which will enable us to then receive what God is actually saying. Otherwise what we get is another set of rules and regulations. And we take people out of one set of rules and plonk them straight into another set of rules where Jesus said, the truth will set you free. But the principle of... The railroad runs through the middle of the Up and down through the middle of the <laughs> Sorry, it's, gone now. it's the difference uh, between ownership and stewardship is what we're looking at here and God God will just see to you if you're in ownership about anything if you're in ministry and you own it, my ministry this and my ministry that, my church this and my church that, it ain't your ministry it ain't your church that's ownership you're in stewardship and you can have to give an account so you need to be a steward, not an owner. But that's the whole basis of it is stewardship. He gives it to us and then he sees what we do with it. So here's Jesus saying there, you can't serve God and Mammon. therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And he goes on to say in Matthew 6, verse 33, this is probably my life verse. Every one of you will have a life verse if you think about it. And mine is this. But seek first only the kingdom of God, that's the reign and rule of God in your heart, and his righteousness, right living and behavior. And all these things will be added to you Therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If you can live in that and get topside of that you will live in a place of peace. When I was going away at Christmas last time, story against myself, it was going to be Christmas time, and the girlie I was going with, she always has semi skimmed milk. And I like full cream milk. So I was having a little agitate about whether I would be able to get my full cream <laughs> while I was dead that's all I was bothered about if I can have a cup of tea I'll be alright and the Lord sort of said to me excuse me therefore do not think what you will eat or what you will drink when I was dead like that sorry Lord <laughs> things that trip trick you up is amazing isn't it anyway So what we're looking at is what is really important. Seeking first and only the kingdom of God. But you'll notice that everything you need then will be added. It'll be added to you. So they're not unimportant, but they're not the most important. They're not as important as having your priorities right. The thing that Jesus is after is having our priorities right, and that's the key. So there are two warnings in that passage of Matthew six nineteen to 21 One is about greed, if you've got a lot of it, and the other one is about worry. So the rich are warned not to be greedy about money, and the poor are warned not to be worrying about it, because either way you're getting distracted. You can get so involved with money and getting plenty of it that you actually lose your focus on the kingdom of heaven. Or you're always worrying and fretting about not having enough, and that occupies you, and again you get distracted. So both are to be avoided. To the one, the answer is store up treasure in heaven, that is to the rich. And you do that by being generous. To the other, the poor, it's don't worry about tomorrow. He'll provide. I think it's actually up there on that board, something about trusting God. Money is the servant of the kingdom of God, not the other way round. It is a servant, not a master. It is there to provide for the gospel. It's there to provide for the ministers, to provide meeting places. That's what it's all about. As soon as money becomes the master, you're in trouble. And that's what Jesus was really trying to get at. You cannot serve God and money. One master is all you can cope with. So if all you think about from morning to night is money, how to earn it, how to keep it, it's your master. Those of us who are not well off need to realise that too, that we can have money as a master, even if we haven't got the stuff, because it dominates our thinking about how we're going to get it and make ends meet, too much month and not enough money. Um, some of you know the story of how uh, we live, and um, sometimes it can get a bit hairy with large bills coming in and not enough um, money coming in and uh, I was on one of my agitation trips not too long ago and through the door came um, a, an advert for a, one of the car breakdown services and the, right across it it said we won't leave you broke <laughs> so I knew what God was saying I just suck it up on the wall to remind myself I look at it every time that it's ok you won't leave us broke have you ever? no god sets you to do something i'll tell you he will fund it you don't have to have, bring and buy sales make pots of jam unless he tells you of course so little dollies like we used to have we've had to go that way we have had to do it the hard way but because god told us to not because we thought we need to raise funds you know what i mean we used to, we used to say it was like arsenic and old lace Does anyone ever seen, I and mean, it's a very old uh, play that you ran for a long time in the in the west end and these two old ladies and uh, um, they were very lovely and done up in their lace but they used arsenic and they popped off everybody who came in the house you know so it was called arsenic and old lace and i said "Jobs you know, were a bit like that um oh, during the day where we'd be making little dollies and selling them at the wesley center and casting out demons in the evening you know <laughs> arsenic and old lace. we looked innocent you know still do, except if you happen to be a demon. We can think there's no real conflict in my life and actually there can be quite easily. How many Christians put career before God or the house? I must paint the house before I do anything else. There's nothing wrong with a good career move or painting the house, but what are your priorities? Is your time with God your priority or is painting the house? When I've done this, Lord, do you remember somebody else saying that? Lord, let me first bury my father. And Jesus said, sounds cool. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What the man was saying was, let me hang about until dad pops off and I get my inheritance and then I'll be free to follow you and do whatever you want. I have heard people say, well, when I get this and this and this, then I'm going I'm to give my life to the Lord and I'm going to give him what he wants. One person who said that to me, I had a dream about, and I was going down some stairs, and this person was behind me. And when I come, this and that and the next thing, um, then I'm going to really go for it in God. And I, I answered, you won't have time. And they died. They actually were taken before they thought they were ready to commit themselves to God. So if he's asking you to give him... Something today, please, would you give it to him? Because he's not a robber. (laughs) And uh, we come. He brings us the easiest way we will come. It's us that stop our progress in the Christian walk. You know, it's nobody else. He will fast track us. You get to choose. If you are wrestling with something right now, and God's saying, I want you from moving over here to over here, you you can do it. 30 seconds flat, it's a decision. Move. But that's, it's as easy as that. That was for someone, I expect. So what he's saying is, I'll get my inheritance, then I'll be free to follow you and do what you want. Jesus says, you're no good to me. Lord, I can't spare you an hour this day. I've got too much to do. God will always meet you. You will find those so urgent things will get done. Make room for him. Proverbs 16.3 says commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. When you're busy as we are you have to do that so that what you thought was important he will sometimes do a swipe straight through the centre of it and you'll find at the end of the day you've done that which was important. And it is never a waste of time to spend time with God. Because all things come of him And everything goes back to him. And without him, you can do diddly squat. That doesn't mean you can't actually do anything. It means you can do nothing of lasting value without him. So have a little way. What is your life consisting of right now? What in it is going to be gold, silver, and precious jewels on that day? Because there's a reward in it. He wants to reward you, but he can't reward you for wood hay and stubble. That'll go poof. He's not unjust. Whatever money is for believers, money is dangerous for unbelievers. Luke twelve thirteen to twenty one and the parable of the rich fool. Jesus, you'll notice, is not drawn into the dispute. He speaks a principle into their lives, and he says. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. That's not what's important. What is important is your immortal soul. The kingdom of heaven is more important than wealth. This is really important for the unbeliever. It isn't how you stand with your bank manager that's important. It's how you stand before God and with God. So he's saying you're not rich towards God. In this passage the man's heart is revealed, Soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God speaks to him on the level of his thinking because he says, this night your soul is required. So what will happen to your money then? The object of the discussion remains the same. What will happen to the money? This is right on his level, speaking where he understands. Fool, God says. That's how God thinks about people who are occupied with the things of this world. You can't take it with you, so you might as well do something useful with it while you've got it. Overall, the Bible views money as neutral. What is important is heart attitude. What we do with it, that's what's important. So if money is more important than kingdom, it matters not whether we are rich or poor. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-four says, riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. All things are passing. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jeremiah 9.23-24 and Let not the wise men glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Paul says in 1 Timothy, Timothy 6, 6-10, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out, but having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And there was a... a, In sort of 18th century time, this Puritan guy was watching the man next door moving in. And he said, uh, all this stuff coming into the house. Friend, he said... uh, If thou dost, I've I've got it here a bit further the the, the nub of it is I'll show you how to do without (laughs) I've actually got this in my notes a bit further on I thought I could remember it but I can't remember it so I'll come to it in a minute tell me what thou means and I'll tell thee how to do without it (laughs) it's incredible what you can do without when you're really dry Uh, so managing money what does the Bible have to say about managing it? 1 Chronicles 29.14 David is speaking but who am I and who are my people one of my favourite scriptures one that we should be able to offer so willingly as this for all things come of you and of your own have we given you he's acknowledging, admitting we don't possess anything, everything belongs to God and he distributes as he thinks fit we may possess money but we don't own it Money is only temporary. The issue, again, is one of stewardship and management. How to steward and manage what God has given us. The Bible itself doesn't actually talk about managers. It talks about stewards. Now, if you're taking notes, I will spell this for you. Oikonomos. Literally, house manager. O-I-K-O-N-O-M-O-S. Oikonomos. And it's from where we get our word economy. So stewardship is about management. And there are many things we have to manage. Time, gifts, abilities, and we are accountable to God for all of these. Hebrews 4.13 says, to whom we must give account. You won't be able to give an account, or you won't have to give an account for that which you do not have. A one-talent person will not be required to give a five-talent return. You're only responsible for what you have, not for what you don't have. So you don't need to get hot round the collar about that. What you do need to do is to say, OK, Father, what have I got? How can I steward it properly? In everything, right the way across the board, It's, it's so much easier. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel. If you can't manage money, you can get advice. Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, the CAB, or even a financial advisor, ask for help. Ask God if you're not good at managing money. Ask him to help you. Poverty is no excuse. The fact that you only have very little is no excuse for not managing that which you have properly. Again, if he can't trust you with little, he's surely not going to trust you with much. 1 Kings 17, 11 to 13, you know it very well. This is where Elijah goes to the widow who has a handful of flour and a little oil and asks her to make him a cake of bread. She's about to eat her last meal and die. But Elijah says, first give to me and then go home and the jar of oil and the flour will not run out. Just think for a moment. Think it's her and her son. I'm just about to make the last meal for us. This strange man comes along and says, make it for me first. So she does as he asks. And you know the story, the jar of oil and the flour didn't run out. If she'd done what she naturally wanted to do, She'd have had one meal, and then they'd have snuffed it, wouldn't they? Poverty is no excuse for not obeying the desire of God with our money and the call of God with our money. It isn't how much you have, it's what you do with what you've got. Poverty is no excuse for lack of generosity. She had generosity of heart before she had generosity of goods. And the result was that she and her son had enough. They didn't overflow, they had sufficient. A closed fist will not bring about the blessing of God. Derek Prince says that all the while we hold on to something with our sticky little hand, God can't multiply. The moment we give it wholeheartedly into his hands, the multiplication begins. He doesn't divide, he multiplies. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Before I was a Christian, I was talking to someone at where I worked and she had, I think, five children, and I've got one. And I said to her, how do you divide your love between five of them? She looked at me she said, darling, I don't divide it, I multiply it. And I thought, well, lesson there out of the two unbelievers talking to each other. She multiplied it. Jesus says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Multiply." And I say to you guys this morning, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this woman trusted God, and she gave what she should have been given her son to this strange man, and God multiplied it. Priorities, it's a recurring theme. In the Christian walk, it's all about priorities. What you put first? Put God first, and he's with you to the last. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first, and all this will be added to you as well. You cannot outgive God. Whatever He's asking of you this morning, give it to Him. You just look quickly, and I'll give it a bottom break. Haggai, Haggai, one five to ten. Interesting book. This. It's about people's personal affairs interfering with God's business, and He has His own ways for getting their attention. The people have become preoccupied with their own building projects and have neglected the work of building the temple. And Haggai points out that their hardships are divinely given symptoms of their spiritual disease. He brings them to an understanding that circumstances become difficult when God's people place their own selfish interests before his. When they put God first and seek to do his will, he will bring his people joy and prosperity. Our priority is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They're both mean exactly the same thing. It's just one is a Hebrew and one is a Greek way of putting it. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which means we're set apart, his own special people, that we may proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvellous light. Can I take a five-minute cup break and stand up and turn around or whatever? Just reading Haggai from the message here, it's, uh, it's really... It's, it, uh, I've got the message because uh, there are some passages in it that are really... Um, excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Teacher, you see. I can't do it with a look like I can with my son because neither of you were looking at me. <laughs> uh, I've got the message here. I was sharing this last night with someone and saying that, you know, it, it's really a, a hoot the way you puts it. So this is Haggai 1, um, really 5 to 7. And he says, this is God speaking. Take a good, hard look at your life. Think it over. You've spent a lot of money, but you haven't much to show for it. You keep filling your plates, but you never get filled up. You keep drinking and drinking, but you're always thirsty. You put on layer after layer of clothes, but you can't get warm. And the people who work for you, what are they getting out of it? Not much. A leaky, rusted-out bucket, that's what. Take a good, hard look at your life. Think it over. And then he tells them what he wants them to do. And he got it again. Thank you. Uh, and he tells them to get on with the temple because that's what they're ignoring doing doing the job that uh, God wanted them to do. Okay. Can you all hear me all right? I feel as if I can't be... Is that all right? That all right? Yeah. yeah. So stewards or managers, what qualities do we need? And uh, first of all, we must be faithful. Luke 1610 to 13. And that parable or this parable is all about the unjust steward who was described as shrewd or crafty he found out that he was about to be found out, if you see what I mean and made provision for himself he'd been diddling his master and closing time was about to be called, he was not faithful he was probably fiddling the books, adding interest to some people's accounts, that's why he went back and had them all to their bills he was storing up favour for himself in the time to come when he was out of work And Jesus commended him for being shrewd in this world's goods and goes on to say that no man can serve two masters. And he was talking in verse 14 to the Pharisees who were lovers of money and they did not like what he was saying. And he went on to describe what was going to happen to them if they died and they didn't change their ways and put God first instead of money, which was their God. He was saying you can't take it with you. Invest it in something that will last. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has set eternity in the heart of men. So we need to begin to measure everything we do with eternity in mind because that's where we're headed after this short span here. What we will do what we do now will it affect, as I said, our rewards then and it's worth considering. It's better than a pension scheme. None of us know. It's, I was very interested when we came in and we looked at that board there, how close is the end of the world? I don't know where your theology takes you about whether uh, the church is going to be taken out of the way first, uh, or whether the, what we're looking for next is the second coming. If you are unsure about that, the notes on Revelation might help you a little bit. That we did at the uh, here, uh, what we did at the last um, baton meeting that we had. Um, we don't know when we're going to be called to account, cal- or we don't know when we're going to stand before the beamer seat of God. I want to say to you, no one in this room is going to stand before the Great White Throne. There is an erroneous teaching in the church that we will stand before the Great White Throne. We will not. That is for unbelievers. The seat we will stand before is the Bema seat, which is the one where the rewards are handed out, where the crowns are handed out. I want a crown or six, don't you? To so throw at the Lord's feet. Ah, so it's not, there is a purpose you know there is a purpose here Building a pension scheme so 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful someone was asking me in the break about uh, the scriptures I was giving they will all be in the notes you know that's why I speak from notes so that you can have them exactly apart from the little sides that you don't get unless you have the CDs um So, 1 Corinthians 4.2, it is required of stewards, that's us, that they be found faithful. Paul was talking about the mysteries of God, and the mysteries are that which was hidden is now revealed. Faithful means trustworthy, reliable or believing. Faithful to the master, to the one to whom you need to give an account. The one who matters. Everything is for an audience of one father pleases jesus only ever did what the father asked him he was a father pleaser we want to be father pleasers if you are fearful of people just think that there's only one person you need to please and that's the father and he's pleased with you already so stuff what anybody else thinks about you here's the important here's the Feelings towards you, the way he sees you, is far more important than anyone else. People pleasing is a real trap, don't it? So we're not responsible for everything, we're only responsible for our own talent. We're only responsible for what God has given us to do. He calls Abraham, leave your land and go to the land I'll show you. Abraham was only required to do what was asked of him. Remember when he called Abraham, he didn't know where he was going. He went out not knowing where he went. I'm responsible at the moment to preach or teach the message as well as I can, but I'm not responsible for you to hear it, learn it, or obey it. But if you find me giving the same message, it's probably because God's saying they're not hearing it, tell them again. Give it to them in a different shape. Same meat, different gravy, as my father used to say. Just give it to them the same way. I can only lay down these truths and leave you to decide. before God. Is this right or is this something I should eat? So every one of us is given things which we steward for the Lord. Our own life, our spouse if we have one, our family, our work and fellowship life, and the assets that the Lord gives us and enables us to build with. And my faithfulness consists in doing what God has called me to right now. It isn't what he called me to a few years ago. I'm moving into something different, and so I've got to be faithful with that. I'm in this, a state of a transition, like a horse when it changes feet, all four feet off the air, in the air, off the ground, striking off on a different foot. Faithfulness is expressed in diligence, and the old English word and meaning of diligence is with love, from the Latin diligio, which is to, Latin for to love. So diligence, diligio, that's D-I-L-I-G-O, diligence in scripture is often translated from the Hebrew words which means such things as care, speed, or being scrupulous. And if you love the Lord, you'll serve him well. If you don't love him, you're not going to serve him. But you may be serving a God of your own making who allows you a license he would never give. I meet Christians every day who don't actually know Jesus but have a God of their own making who is very liberal in what he allows. So the key to successful stewardship is love. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The move of God right now is the the father heart of God. And if you're drawn into the father heart of God, you cannot but help but love other people. Because everything comes from him. You can't love the church, the body of Christ, the bride with your own emotions. You'll get fed up, ticked off, absolutely sick of what you see, what you hear, what you understand. But if you are drawn by the love of the Father to see things from the way he sees it, to see that the brokenness, and that we do walk on broken legs, the best of us won't walk on broken legs because of the fall, you then become not critical and judgmental, but you love people and you meet them where they are at. So it is essential that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength first. And you do that because you respond to his love for you. He, we are responders. We're built to respond. We're not built to react. We learn about not reacting as we learn to respond rather than react. But that's another teaching altogether. But the fact is that when he allures you, as he does at the moment, and calls you into fellowship with himself so that he may show you his heart, there is no lovelier place to live. Because you start to see things with a completely different perspective. That's all about Him. And your relationship with Him. And He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, it says in Hebrews 11.6. It comes to my mind that the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. If you just hear someone say, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's the letter. And I've I've seen a preacher do this. He says, Logos versus rain." he says. Logos, dust on it. Blow it off. It's hard. There's nothing in it. It's just a commandment. But as we're seeing what Jesus was saying, you have heard, but I am saying to you, He's talking about relationship. It's all relational. So you need to come into that relationship. The door's open. Come into that relationship. So that when he says, you know, love me as I love you, virtually, and then you won't find it difficult. It's all about being allowing yourself to be drawn. Letter versus the spirit. So everything that I'm saying this morning should be coming across to you from spirit, not letter. If it's coming across, this is the letter of the law, you've got a line up behind this, then I've missed it. and You need to come and say to me, excuse me, you've missed it. I don't know why. It just keeps coming into my mind that when I first came into Christianity, and some of you have be the same, about 20 years ago, One of the big hot potatoes was, should women wear hats in church? Now, for some of you, that's absolutely never been an issue, but it was a real issue in the Pentecostal church. You had to wear your belly. That was the letter of the (laughs) law. The word of God actually says about covering is this, it's your hair. Women should not go into church with a shaved head because it meant that they were, had been in prostitution and their heads were shaved when they got found out of what they were doing. Uh, letter versus Spirit. Am I making myself clear? Am I? Or am I are you completely puzzled by what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm just thinking back to where I've come from and how God has opened the scriptures and he sort of says, no, it's not like that. It's like me. Is your heart a marker? I don't care whether you wear a hat or not. Should women teach? Another hot potato. Are there women apostles? My goodness, now you're really getting into this. Is leadership male? Oh! Are women sons? Are men the bride? Put these questions to yourself, you know. I mean, he does not know male nor female, slave nor free. Everything hangs on that, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) You know, even some churches still, women shouldn't teach, okay? I'm not teaching, I'm preaching, I'm doing whatever it is that you find acceptable. So he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 But the Lord looks for fruit in us. We aren't here to sit and wait till we get to heaven and everything kicks off. Now is the time for training for reigning. Uh, We need to find out what he requires of us and do it with all we've got. So productivity, John 15:16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, and he's speaking to you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Promises. Start up here. You are chosen, you are appointed to bear fruit that remains, has eternal value, and when you're doing that, whatever you ask, the Father will be given. You've got to line your ducks up there in order to come into the place where whatever you ask, it will be given you. Have you ever had the Lord say, what do you want? And you think, what do I want? I don't know, you tell me. But you can come to that place in your walk with him where he will ask you what you want. And you're not going to be asking for selfish reasons because by now you've got the heart of the Father so you're wanting to know what he wants to do in this. And you start to ask big because you get a stretching of your mind and your understanding. I'm always asking for that. I think too small, I can't can't think big, but I will. Because I will find out what the Lord wants to do and ask him to do it. So because you're living with kingdom values, a kingdom-centered life, you'll ask in accordance with his will. The husbandman comes looking for fruit. Diligence brings reward. Matthew 25, 14 to 24, very familiar scriptures. The parable of the talents. Notice, please, that the master called his own servants to him. They were his servants to start with, and then he went off on a long journey, leaving them to occupy till he came back. Notice also that the servants didn't have equal talents. One, I think it's one, five, ten. God understands each of us, and he gives what he thinks fit and right to suit our abilities. We're all equal before him in as much as he loves us all unconditionally, but we do not all have equal gifts or abilities. As I said before, a one talent person will not be required to give a five talent return. None of this is to condemn you, but to urge you to productivity so that you can find out what are the things that God has planned in advance for you to do. The good works, it says in Ephesians, that he's prepared in advance for you to do. Many of us walk not in the good works he has prepared, but in the good works that the church is asking us to do, which will have no eternal reward. I believe that the first thing the church should be taught to do is to hear God for themselves. Every individual member should be able to hear what God is saying for their lives. And that that also is another issue and something where I believe the Lord is bringing us into line with his word. The whole of what's going on right now is bringing us into line with his word. In the parable of the talents, the one talent man misses the point on two counts. He misrepresents his master and he fails in his duty and he's scolded for his lack of diligence. Not because he didn't make a fortune, but because he didn't serve the master as he should. All stewards are expected to be productive. God gives you something and expects a return. And why? Because he wants to give you a reward, that's why. Not that he needs it. He wants to be able to give you something at the end of the day. So what describes the servant who actually did as the master required? Faithfulness, in a word. Well done, good and faithful servant. He simply did what the Lord wanted. The wicked servant didn't love his master, remember, deligio is to love, and so he misrepresented his master and he let things slide. He totally missed the point that his master would come back looking for a return, sat on his hands and procrastinated. It's good sometimes to ask the Lord if we're sitting on our hands about something he's asked us to do. Procrastination will have eternal consequences. And the root of procrastination is laziness, and the Bible has much to say about this particular virtue. We need to know the times and the seasons. The sons of Issachar, you know, in the Old Testament, they knew the times and the seasons. And spiritual sluggishness is not perceiving what the Holy Spirit is doing now and requiring now. So we need to be like these guys, the sons of Issachar, who knew the times and the seasons. We need to see the season we're in and act accordingly. We can't afford to sit on our hands anymore. Paul says it's required only that we be faithful what we have been given. So I trust you begin to see that stewardship is not just about money. But your attitude to that will show where you are spiritually. Proverbs 24, 30-34 I went by the field of a lazy man by the vineyard of a man devoid of understanding and there it was all overgrown with thorns its stone wall was broken down when I saw it I looked on it and received instruction Joyce and I are always quoting this when we drop off a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest so shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man This speaks of carelessness, of inattention to what needs to be done. Not looking at your credit card and saying, can I really afford all this? But running up debts without concern for how you're going to pay them off. Laziness in any area will end in lack. Be diligent, therefore. We really need to ask God's help with inattention to monetary matters. Ask his help. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, there's a scripture, when we were with you, we told you, if a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. Strong stuff. Anyone who thinks Christianity is a soft way needs to think again. I'm not talking about the sick, the infirm, and the aged here. I'm talking about those who should be working but are sponging off the government and the church. And we have to give the whole counsel of God when we teach, not just the nice bits, you know. Proverbs 12:24 says that diligent hands will rule. Proverbs 21, 5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Proverbs 28, 19, one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. Make sure you aren't chasing fantasies. Are you not in the job you should have simply because you can't get yourself going in the morning? Ask God for help. Self-motivation isn't easy. I have to make sure I'm motivated or these meetings would never take place. Yesterday I wanted to read through my notes but um, I got into an interesting situation with my Nick last night where he was going to teach me to play the keyboard. And I forgot all about the fact that I wanted to look at my notes and read them through and check the scripture references and all that because I was having such a good time. And I'm going like that. One, one, then that one then that one then that one <laughs> so I said to the Lord when I went up to bed I don't think I can do it tonight so when I got up this morning I got out my laptop for which I'm most grateful plugged in and had a quick scan through but if I'd have got up at half past eight this morning I wouldn't have been no fait with what I needed to talk to you about and of course I've always got to be aware that God might just change the subject right at the last minute so you do your homework, you study, you do it, and then he tells you when you get there, if he wants to change the direction. But at the moment he hasn't done that. So the diligent improve themselves. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. The Lord gave me that scripture for my son, which I, was, I thought was really lovely. He does work hard, it gets agitated too. Go for promotion, go for training, provided it doesn't cut across God's call for your life. Never, never, never put money before God's call on you. No matter how much you make, it will turn to ashes in your hands if you fail to respond to him and his plan for your life. So there's nothing wrong with having money or making money, provided you do not violate the word of God, the principles of God or the call of God. Just make sure that your priority is the kingdom. When your church asks for money, ideally it should be so that it can bless people out there in the world who are insufficient in areas. It's not really so that we can provide another steeple, but sometimes things do have to be done to the structure of the building. And the labourer is worthy of his hire. Paul says that those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. So we as a body do have a responsibility to provide for those who labour in the context of church life. That is absolutely right. 1 Corinthians 9.14 Diligence and faithfulness is what is required of us in everything. If you aren't sure about where you are in any area, ask God and he'll tell you. If you aren't sure where or what to give, ask him. He will tell you. Don't just be um I must we were, I was sharing this with Nick last night. I read it in the in the message. two scriptures here, I'm not quite sure I'll read them guys. But... Oh, one Corinthians 16, one, two. 3, this speaks very clearly. You know, there's always such an issue, isn't there? I'll come on to it in a minute, but I'll, I'll, uh, is this the one I wanted No, It's 2 Corinthians 8, I think, 1.15. It made us laugh so